Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and joining me tonight in a rare evening podcast, (laughs) as he always does, is President Wyatt. Hi, Scott. Hello, Steve. It's nice to be it's nice to be here together on this Thanksgiving week. It is Thanksgiving week, and uh, um, we decided that, despite the fact that you can't see, it's quite dark and quite late, and we decided we'd get together and record a podcast about the story of Thanksgiving because yeah. what we might have learned in school about it or, or might have become folklore, it's not the whole story anyway. Yeah, so the, the teaser is this. Why did the pilgrims come to America? Of course, we can't really answer the question right now because then our listeners might say we've got the answer. We'll shut it off. That's right. But I'll I'll bite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> religious freedom I, is kind of the stock answer, right? Yeah, that is the stock answer, but it's actually sort of not accurate. I mean, it's complicated. Right. But... Yeah. So so let's go back and start right. at the beginning. It's the Dutch, right? That who we're talking about? <laughs> Aren't, isn't that where the pilgrims come from? Well, the pilgrims come from England. Oh, Originally. Okay. So the story that we have, uh, let's start this story in 1603. Okay. We have a new king, James. The same James for the King James Bible. Right. And King James um, starts putting a lot of pressure to force everyone to conform to the Church of England. And those who were a little bit sideways with the Church of England were subject to some fairly serious punishments. Um, Prison, even execution, those kinds of things. Yeah, I I happen to be a part of a... I happened to be a part of a broadcast that was about the 400th anniversary of the coming forward of the King James Bible. And everything that led up to that, if you ever get a chance to, to, I'll I'll mention the name of the show later because I'm sure we're going to talk about this era, but but it was a PBS special. And the ways in which they killed people or tortured people in those days, <laughs> most unsavory. I, yeah. I was involved in the music of a of a particular scene that was very difficult to watch as they were reenacting it. Yeah, well, there's no point killing somebody. You've got to kill them with a little bit of style. That's right. I'll say it now. Fires of faith. Fires of faith. Yeah, if you ever if you ever get a chance to see a, a show called Fires of Faith, while they're executing Tyndall and all the other people that were advocating for the Bible to be in English. Um, that's me in the in the background, humming and singing in Gaelic and other things. Yeah, well, and you know what? It's it's worth pausing a half a minute um, and making a comment that um, 
we struggle a little bit in our world today, accepting people with different opinions and being inclusive and all that kind of stuff. But we right. are sure a lot further ahead than uh, 1603. That's right. That's where right. if you didn't believe and worship exactly right, you were in serious trouble. Well, it was during this time we've got this guy by the name of William Brewster. I've and heard he's that a, name. Yeah, he's a postmaster in England, small little tiny village. Um, but what's unique about him is, is that he's got a manor house, and in the manor house secretly a group of separatists are meeting every Sunday and one of two ministers is none other than John Robinson who you may also have heard of right and there's a little kid I shouldn't say kid but he was young by the name of William Bradford who also plays prominently in the pilgrim story he does becomes a a political leader that's right yeah yeah so these, uh, these guys are meeting, and it's helpful probably to remember what a separatist is. So we have, during the 1600s, the Puritans, and the Puritans thought that the church had wandered astray, um, a lot of um, inappropriate things, and so they wanted to purify the church, get back to the original New Testament church, anything that was taught in the Church of England that or the Catholic Church, for that matter, that wasn't straight out of the Bible, was man-made, and it was uh, not good. They were also predestination believers. Oh. But within this group of Puritans that wanted to take us back to the pure, original New Testament faith was kind of a radical, extreme element, and they were the separatists. And the separatists didn't just want to take care of all the problems in the church. They just said, we're out of here. So they just want to leave. New church. New church. Let's go. Um, we're not going to reform this church around us, but we know what we need to believe, and so we're just going to go off on our own. And so you've got John Robinson as the minister secretly in William Bradford's house and this group of separatists. Well, it just so happens that in 1607, the Bishop of York discovers their meeting there, sends the authorities after them. Several people are arrested and go to jail. Others that were worshiping there figured out that their homes were being watched. They were under surveillance. Um, wow. Kind of interesting, isn't yeah. it? Um, this, was a, this was a really scary time for them. They can't, they can't worship that they want without having the government tracking them down, following them, mm. watching them at night looking through the windows of their homes to see if they're doing something on Sundays that they shouldn't be doing, like worshiping the way they want. I imagine this is where we get our separation of church and state <laughs> clause. Well, no, not for a long time. Oh, well, that, that'll that be interesting. Okay, yeah, sorry, not I'll quit interrupting. No, no, this is good. Um, but nevertheless, this is when the separatists decided um, it's time to leave because we're not giving in. We want to worship the way we want to worship, and uh, we can't do it here. This is too scary. People keep going to prison. So they decide that they're going to leave, and they're going to go to Holland. That's where the Dutch come in. I right. knew they were in there. Somewhere. Yeah, you knew that was part of the story. Yeah. But they're going to go to Holland because in Holland there's uh, wide-open religious freedom. So they can go to Holland. They can worship the way they want. They don't have to worry about anything. 
problem is you can't travel out of the country without official permission. And England is not going to give official permission to any separatists at all. So not only can you not worship the way you want to worship, but you can't leave and worship the way you want somewhere else. Um, Well, this is a... Their escape from England to Holland actually, in and of itself, is one of those great adventure stories. Um, This would make a good movie. Wow. Just this part. So the first attempt, they hire a captain, an English captain, who takes their money and ends up being a thief. After he's got their money, he notifies the authorities. Authorities come. They arrest him. And a bunch of the leaders go to jail. Wow. It's a great setup. Give me your money. I call the authorities. Yep. I'm free. You're in jail. Um, do that a few times a year and you can make a lot of cash. That's right. <laughs> and a lot of separatist groups were doing this. They were, they were leaving. So there had been several groups go to Holland and set up their own little community. The second attempt, they hired a Dutch captain. And the Dutch captain was uh, more honest than this other guy. But the Dutch captain brings his ship in, and as they start loading on the ship, you've got several of the men on the ship, the women and children are still on the shore, when all of a sudden the local militant shows up. Oh, wow. And the Dutch captain is scared that he's going to be in trouble, so he just sets sail. And there you've got all these men on deck, looking to the shore where their wives and their kids are all crying. And and it takes a long time before, of course, the men keep going to Holland because that's where the captain takes them. Uh, And it takes quite a while for the men remaining on the shore and the other women and kids to connect up with them in Holland. Oh, my gosh. So they went separately then. They went separately. That's amazing. The separatists went separately. Um, But this was not an easy deal. You know, they're sneaking around and... um, getting in trouble, but they were pretty darn persistent in what they were doing. Well, months later, they get reunited in Holland. Um, John Robinson, their minister, leads them to a town called Leiden. And Leiden is a commercial center. So these, these separatists are coming from these beautiful pasture lands of England where they have sheep and and they've got that agricultural lifestyle. Right. But now they're in a commercial center, and the employment that they're able to get is working in factories. They don't like it. After they're there for quite a bit of time, working six days a week from dawn to dusk, um, back-breaking work, um, not very fun. Um, then there are some other things that start happening. Um, there's a treaty that um, Holland has with Spain, and it's about to come due, and that creates some uncertainties for them. What's going to happen when this treaty uh, comes undone? And then there was also um, some debates and unrest over some theologians that were preaching things, and that created uncertainty. Is Are we going to really have full religious freedom or not? What's, What's going on in this country? Nothing had changed, but they were worried about it. Right all this stuff. But the most important part, the part that made them the most upset or concerned about their years in Holland was that their children were growing up to be Dutch. 
Mm. And these are people who, although they don't believe in the Church of England, still loved England. They wanted to have their own English community. They wanted their children to grow up English. They did not want them to be like the Dutch. And so at that point, they decide, we, we've got to leave Holland. Not so much for religious freedom, but to escape the influences the Dutch are having on our kids. Interesting. Who are, yeah, who are becoming disconnected with their English heritage. So here is the teaser for Thanksgiving dinner. When you show up for Thanksgiving dinner and the family's all gathered around, you say, why did the pilgrims come to America? Across the road. (laughs) Yes. To get to the other side. That's right. No, the actual answer is sort of to escape the Dutch. So, yes, absolutely, they were seeking religious freedom, but they found it in Holland. Um, But they couldn't live an English village lifestyle in Holland. Um, so they're, you know, in a lot of ways, they were actually escaping the Dutch, not getting religious freedom. I just think that's such a fun little that twist is. on the story. Of course they were religious, and of course they were seeking religious freedom, but they wanted religious freedom in an English village. I just spent in, in three Holland. or four days in Amsterdam, and uh, and they talk about that golden era, which is right during this period that we're talking about, where Amsterdam was a world commercial center. And you can see that if you had grown up living an agrarian lifestyle, that all of a sudden being thrown into a, you know, into a, essentially yeah. the beginnings of the industrial revolution, not quite that, but yeah. into a oh, major yeah. world uh, port that mm-hmm. that you'd... You're making shoes. Yeah, exactly. From dawn to dusk, six right. days a week. Or you're Candles or yeah, whatever you're it is. In, you're in cloth factories. This is... Um, this is not a wonderful lifestyle for, yeah. for them. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, now it's in their mind we're headed to America. Um, this is actually, we've talked already about the sacrifices, the adventure, the risks that they took escaping from England to Holland and then the discomforts and the backbreaking work in Holland, and now they're going to talk about going to America. Um, this is uh, super scary. This is not um, light stuff. Not an easy journey. So all attempts to establish a permanent English settlement had failed, except for Jamestown in 1607. So they knew that these various attempts had not been successful. Right. But Jamestown, so you got to tell me if this is successful or not. Right. Year one, 108 settlers land, and 70 of them die in the first year. In the second year, 500 500 settlers land, and within that year, 440 of them die. Oh, my gosh. In fact, between 1619 and 1622... The Virginia Company sent 3,600 settlers to Virginia. 3,000 of them died. Um, the odds are not with you. No. And plus, the, the, the <laughs> well light, over a coin flip that you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, it is well over. 
Yeah, well over a coin flip. Plus, they're read, this is dying of starvation. Um, plus, they hear all of these stories about the native Indians, um, what they would call them, um, and all the horrible atrocities that they're committing against these new settlers. They're, they're reading in books in the library about the most gruesome kinds of deaths that are being inflicted, whether it's true or not. This, these are the stories that they're reading, and right. some of them are, are horrible. Um, so it's not working for anybody else. Uh, most of the people die. There are these scary people over there. They're going to come after us uh, in their minds. But they decide to go anyway. And um, they go because they believed that God wanted them to go. They believed that they were on the very edge of the millennium and that this was, um, that the new world was the place um, where the millennium was going to be perfect. And in addition to that, in 1618, there was a bright comet that flies over um, England and they, they thought that might be, many of the people thought that that might be the signs of the great battle of Armageddon. Mm. Um, kind of scary. When you don't understand these things, right. they, they can play um, a lot of thoughts in your minds. The final apocalyptic battle is coming. It's on its way. Um, just before they leave, there's reports of another group of separatists. Um, 180 boarded the ship. And by, by the time that ship reached um, the Americas, 130 of them were dead. They didn't even get across the ocean. Before. That's a bad cruise. Yeah, it's a bad cruise. Yeah. Wow. Um, and these ships, it's you know, the astonishing the morbidity rates. It's yeah, just. they're terrible. <laughs> but they keep going. You know, yeah. I mean, if we, if today, if we, um, and we talk about, you know, everybody that's on the Oregon Trail and the Mormon Trail and right. all these trails that are coming across the plains centuries later, um, and the risks that people took on those. Um, but today, Steve, if we were to, you know, if 50% of the people died on a journey and we took our families, we would be prosecuted for child abuse That's right. <laughs> or would. neglect or something. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's, the odds are just not good enough. Um, well, so the, the process of getting um, started was fraught with all kinds of problems, too. So they just, it just keeps coming for these people. They decided to join up with uh, Thomas Weston and his group of merchant adventurers. These were a group of London merchants who um, were investing in Virginia mm. um, or the Hudson. And so you would, um, they would pay all the costs for you to go across the ocean. And then once you arrived, you'd work four days a week for them, two days a work week for yourself, have the Sabbath day free. And it would take several years to repay them the cost of going across. Um, and so they started uh, thinking about that, working with them. They would be fishing and working in the fur trade um, to pay this all back. But in 1620, as Thomas Weston is trying to get this together, things start going sideways. There's no ship. Uh, they become worried about it. So the pilgrims end up on their own purchasing a ship in Holland called the Speedwell. It's a 60-ton vessel, and in June of 1620, they set sail. 
to shorten the story, Speedwell was not seaworthy. So they've spent all their money um, on a ship that they can't take. Wow. They end up um, back with Thomas Weston with this merchant adventures group um, who had eventually found a ship called? The Mayflower. The Mayflower. That's right. I got one right, finally. (laughs) (laughs) And um, ultimately, on then on uh, September 6th of 1620, the Mayflower sets sail. There's 102 on board. About 50 of them are pilgrims, and 52 of them are not necessarily religious at all. They're just going over there to make money. Yeah. I don't know why that seems like a small number to me. I mean, yeah. we we kind of it's a small say number. this is our first real significant toehold, and it was really 50 people. 50 people. 50 wow. pilgrims. Yeah. Plus about 52 adventures. And we can't, uh, we can't forget to mention there were two dogs. Two so dogs. 104 total, if you count the dogs. There you go. Um, and um, they cross the ocean. They, it's, it's late. Um, it's a particularly challenging trip across. By the time they get over, they're, they're out of food. They're, the water barrels, have, you know, they're dipping out of the bottom of the barrels, and those are not good places to drink from. Right. They're out of uh, beer, which is the safest thing that you can drink because of the alcohol, which kills everything. everything. But they land. Um, the uh, the story of the Mayflower Compact, which is another story altogether, but kind of one of the first sort of governments in this country. That's right. Um, and uh, by and so they're landing late in the year, but by the time spring comes around, um, as you could guess, uh, half of them are dead. Right. So fifty-two out of this group of 102 are dead by spring. Wow. Not great. And this is where Squanto comes in. Right. All these other um, Native Americans. Squanto could speak English. Squanto had been to Europe. Um, He's the guy that showed him how to grow corn. What a miracle that is. (laughs) Isn't that That, interesting? There was someone there that could... Talk to him. Yeah, that could interpret. Um, They're... um, if we played this story on through, there was a lot of intrigue and um, uh, the way the pilgrims and the various local natives um, kind of conspired around and seeking power and everything. It was really quite an interesting, that's quite an interesting story, but that's a story for another day. Um, but they figure out how to grow corn by putting some fish in each hole and all those kinds of things. Now, I don't know that story. Yeah, Squanto. I mean, seeds, obviously, too, but yeah, the fish helps the... You put you put a piece of fish in the hole when you plant the seed of corn, and, and the corn will grow. Wow. So he was um, showing them how they could be productive in their agricultural pursuits. Um, they spend that year, and things work out reasonably well. Um, and that fall, they have their first Thanksgiving dinner. And we don't know when it was. It was probably late September, early October, not November. Um, 
But here's uh, here's what's on the menu. So you ready? Ready. Cranberry sauce. No. No pumpkin pies. By the way, I'm okay with no cranberry sauce. <laughs> I'm not sure how that wedged its way in there. I'd just like to say, but okay. It, it seems a little random, doesn't it? <laughs> this is what they probably had. They they certainly grew corn. So they had right. corn. They right. had squash. They grew beans. They had barley, peas. They would have undoubtedly had ducks and geese and wild turkeys. A uh, lot of fish, so they probably had bass and bluefish and cod. Because they had a crop of barley, they had beer that they were able to brew. No forks or spoons, they would have eaten with knives and fingers. But that's the first Thanksgiving dinner. That, no, that sounds like pretty good. Yeah, it's not a bad meal. Yeah. Um, that's a big meal. Big celebration. Um, and then as we remember... Um, we just play this on forward, and what the pilgrims are really after is they're after not really religious freedom in the sense that we think of religious freedom, but they wanted to practice religion the way they believed it in a community that had the same culture of an English community. Um, they weren't particularly excited about everybody worshiping however they wanted to. They really kind of wanted everybody to worship the way they wanted to well, worship. Well, there, there you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you can understand that because uh, back then it was it was really seen that communities were more stable if everybody had the same faith. Right. Which was part of the reason why King James was pushing everybody to have the same faith. So this was the tradition that they grew up in, and, um, and they just were perpetuating that same tradition. Only in a way that they could worship the way they wanted to worship. Um, interestingly, most of the colonies ended up having established religions. And even even all the way to the point of 1776 when the country's starting and each, each state creates its own constitution after or around the time that we declared independence from Great Britain. Right. We're fast-forwarding quite a bit of time but even then a lot of the a lot of the states put into their constitutions established religions really yeah so that's interesting yeah the the constitution of the united states says in its first amendment no established religion but that only applied to the federal government it did not apply to the state governments the state governments were not restricted by any of the first amendments any of the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment. And so the, there's, a, there's an amendment, right? A supremacy amendment of some kind. 14, yeah, that, right? That, that doesn't it? come until... Of course, all the states have their own constitutions, so a lot of those things applied to them through their own constitutions. Right. But, right. but most of their constitutions ha- created an established religion. And those Bill of Rights don't apply to anybody until after um, one at a time each of those rights, one at a time, after the Civil War and after the 14th Amendment. But, that's, wow. but then again, that's another story, too. Yeah, but that's pretty I'm amazingly sure. far down the road. Yeah, I'm still yeah. thinking of venison still. and t- wild turkey. And yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's first, the story of the first Thanksgiving. First Thanksgiving. Have you ever been to Plymouth Rock? I have, yeah. It's not nearly as... Impressive <laughs> as, as you... Yeah, it's pretty oh. small little... Yeah. Plymouth... 
pebble. Exactly. <laughs> Plymouth step stone onto the shore. Yeah, I had the image of this massive boulder. That's sort of what I thought, too. It's not exactly that, is it? Nope. Just one of the things that, uh, just another thing that we've learned in our discussion about Thanksgiving. But it is a gorgeous place. And and there were a lot of things that that, um, made it so that they could be successful when so many others had failed. But still, my goodness, the mortality rate of these, they, they had to be driven by these deep beliefs that God wants them there, that they're on the edge of the millennium, or as the other half of the people on the Mayflower were, a, a, a very unfortunate and poor life in England and the hopes of becoming rich. Yeah. It was both types, and they lived together. If we were to fast forward, of course, George Washington had a declaration of a Thanksgiving feast, and Abraham Lincoln had a declaration of Thanksgiving feast, ultimately landing us as the fourth Thursday of November right. this year. And that maybe, went back and forth for a long time, yeah. actually, into the into the twentieth century. That went back and forth. Yeah, and maybe if it's Thanksgiving and one of the ways to to be thankful is to find some way to do it with somebody else or to help somebody or yeah we we um we typically find uh at the university here at southern utah university and i i believe at many colleges and universities uh in the united states try to schedule ways that uh international students who are visiting can have thanksgiving dinner with the local local family mm-hmm. yeah I remember when I was a kid, we did that all the time. There was my dad, who was a faculty member, would bring home some of his students and we'd have Thanksgiving with them. Um, That was always uh, kind of an interesting cultural thing for us. Anyway. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We wish you, our listeners, a very happy Thanksgiving. Please be safe, be happy, be peaceful. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu. Dot edu.